Okay. So, I have a, some sort of upper respiratory plague. So I'm going to, you can see my <clears throat> collection of drinks over here. To go with some uh, Ricola and uh, various drugs to keep me uh, from falling apart physically. So, if you hear something that you don't, you think sounds crazy or, or whatever, it could be the normal Tim Spivey talk, or it could be the drugs. So you just keep it, uh, keep it, uh, you know, under control, and I will too. Uh, I'm going to walk us through <clears throat> yesterday and what we did, just super quickly, and I want, and then I'll start with one question I got. I got I had five of you uh, come to me after class. Two of you asked the same question, um, and I've been asked it probably no less than uh, over the years I've been teaching here at Pepperdine. Uh, 50 times. Um, the question is, how do I get rid of a bad elder? <laughs> uh, so, and my answer has changed over the years. My current answer is, you do not. You don't. Uh, if, they, if you manage to get rid of them, you're probably going to go with them. So you just need to know that. Um, the best thing you can do <clears throat> is get the other elders, not in a dysfunctional triangling kind of way, but um, to change the culture of the eldership itself and neutralize that person to where they feel like they don't fit anymore and they self-select out. Uh, and that's the only way that I've ever found it to be successful. Um, and so uh, the way that you can do that, for instance, is there's one very small uh, thing that I, I used to do uh, with every church that I worked with, which was to get them to agree that only the eldership has any authority. Individual elders have none. So if you can get that one thing done and get them to covenant toward that end, uh, that actually, you just chop the authority of that person significantly because you don't end up with one of those deals where you just preach a sermon where you, you went out on a limb, one of your elders comes up and says, oh, that was awesome, man, great job. And the next guy comes up and says, don't you ever say that again. And then the preacher's confused or whatever, okay? Um, but if you try to make it your life's mission to get them gone, <clears throat> Unfortunately, in the system we're in, uh, that's just a, a, a position that doesn't dissolve quickly. And so I'd just be very careful about trying to run them out of town or do anything like that. Uh, otherwise, make sure your resume is sharp, because usually, in my experience, they go, you, you and that person go together. Um, so uh, I would just advise you in that particular way, and we can come back to that a little bit later if you want. All right, so that's my contact info. If uh, I can be of service to you or your church in any way, shape, or form, uh, whether it's coming in to help with a, a triage situation or whether it's a, um, a coaching thing. So I, I've coached people on everything from preaching to um, church planning to uh, almost anything under the sun that you can think of. So if your preacher, for instance, could use some help in the pulpit, uh, I wouldn't go up to him and say, you really need some help in the pulpit. <laughs> but <clears throat> what you could do is say, hey, uh, we think that everybody, no matter how good they are at anything, still has a coach. Tiger Woods has a swing coach, okay? It's not a weird thing to, to, to continue to get better. And I still uh, have mentors that I look to for advice and things uh, along the way. So if I can be helpful. So <clears throat> yesterday, causes of unintentional death of churches. You can't raise anything that's not dead. All right? So if you're going to resurrect the church, church has to die. It could be an internal or an external death or both. And there are, are unintentional <clears throat> causes of death. Hidden sin being a big one. And Colin, uh, and... Um, if you're trying to figure out, hey, all the ducks are in a row, it's just not happening, something's going wrong, we continue to decline, we continue to do whatever, pay attention to stories like Ananias and Sapphira and Achan about hidden sin going on in the camp uh, because it can really uh, surprise you sometimes what comes out. Uh, and, I, and I've been, a lot of those times when I go into a church is because that has actually come out. And it's not always the preacher. It's the elders. And one of the things they're trying to do is, is um, oh, it's like the Bible, we put it, in, and he dismissed her quietly. They're trying to get rid of the problem by, by getting that person off the ship and trying to figure out how do we, how do we, do we address this with the church? Do we not address this with the church? Uh, how do we handle it? Uh, I worked with one maybe a year ago where uh, the pastor of the church uh, came out of the closet, and uh, the pastor was an elder on top of it, and so that's a tricky one. It was a, large, a pretty big church. Uh, about a thousand people, and so you know, you, you got the newspapers are going to notice, and you have things like that going on. Uh, I've got other ones where pr uh, the preacher ha has a drug problem, or a gambling problem, or pornography addiction, or whatever. And I've been in there where an elder, or two, or three, or four, 
have some sort of, of, of this. And so being able to process that so that your church stays blessable. We talked yesterday, that's number one. If God's not with you, the game's over. Amen. So if this is going on, uh, God can't bless you and that kind of thing. So, so really trying to put yourself in a position to be righteous. Uh, and so that means also creating an environment where things can be repented of uh, and confession can take place. Leadership meltdown, <clears throat> leaders get at each other's throat, preacher, elders, elder to elder, staff to staff, and meltdown sequence begins. Uh, I told you that, that lenders, even in banks, um, will tell you that their biggest risk factors, if they're going to let your church borrow money, are moral failure in the pulpit and leadership meltdown. They have nothing to do with money. It becomes a financial issue when these happen, but... Uh, so they, uh, like in the church lending world, if you talk to a guy at CDF or at uh, Solomon Foundation, they spend <clears throat> more time checking me out personally uh, than they do looking at our financials. And they're looking at track record. Is he married? Is he a good husband? Does he have kids? Is he a good father? Uh, how long has he been there? When might he leave? Who knows this guy? Let's go back and let's talk to anybody from... Uh, the college he went to all the way through. I mean, they're doing a big, thorough um, check on me because they understand the collateral damage when, when that happens, right? Leadership meltdown in the churches of Christ, for the most part, uh, tends to happen in the elder category or between preachers and elders. It's not, I haven't, I haven't probably, I've done 5% staff-to-staff conflicts. Um, none of the staff has any real power. So it's usually elders, preachers, or elder, elder, eldership within itself. Chronic reactivity. Uh, I just overreact to everything because I'm anxious, and you are too. And so everything we do is based around uh, fear, trying to avoid um, being upset. So, for instance, um, uh, and, and if you have not, I, I will preach this till my dying day. The best leadership book ever written, in my humble opinion, other than the Bible, is a book called A Failure of Nerve by a guy named Edwin Friedman. And it's dense. I use it in the class I teach here at Pepperdine as a textbook. It was in my doctor of ministry program at, at Abilene. Uh, and there's a there's a pre-volume to that called generation to generation, but it his theory he was a family therapist in a in a Jewish rabbi, but he was he was a big time therapist, you know Johns Hopkins Medical Center chief therapist there. That people are not fundamentally rational, they are emotional. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, so I won't belabor the point. But the heart will beat the head in any street fight any day. So if a person is anxious or a person that is driven by their emotions uh, and highly anxious, then they're going to make a sequence of really bad decisions. So uh, we used some examples yesterday of where leadership teams missed this. Uh, let's say you wanted to make moves to include uh, women more fully in the worship experience of the church. Well, in a <clears throat> chronically anxious system, you usually don't try that, first of all, because you're afraid of what people will do. If you do try it, the church will flip out when it's first brought up because they're chronically anxious and not because their reason is kicked in, but because their emotions, and I don't mean their, their feelings per se, but their anxiety level goes way up, which is why you teach that one year series on the role of women in the church, uh, you still lose half your church because it's anxious, okay? So you have to be aware of how powerful that is and lower the anxiety. Last night, Josh Ross preached a great sermon. When we talked about race yesterday in this class and how we addressed it, okay, Josh <clears throat> went a little further than I would have, but he also um, really uh, did a great job of keeping the anxiety of the crowd low uh, so that they would listen to what he had to say. It was a great example of leading from the pulpit, in my opinion. Um, so instead of getting up there and just ranting from the beginning of the sermon till the end, he smiled all the time. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that, that help the church stay less reactive, okay? Keeps things calm, keeps it from escalating. But when a church is chronically reactive, they can't go anywhere because what they're trying to do, they're getting jerked to and fro. Um, uh, chronically anxious churches, you get emails every week from people. Uh, you get, uh, even in a church of, of 50, you, get, you still get emails every week. Um, in a non-chronically anxious church, I've, I've gotten one critical email in this calendar year. And that's a good, I, I actually kind of use that as, a, as an anxiety gauge. I go, all right, how are we feeling? And given the fact that we're doing all the things we're doing, that's pretty remarkable. I feel good about our people and where we're at heading into this building change that we're doing. Okay, moving on. Um, so that was the, the clip. So this, this is an example. This is kind of what our facility is going to be here in hopefully two years. Um, 
Moving on. <clears throat> Stepping out of the grave. Starts with God, ends with God. Divine power, know thyself. That's, again, not being anxious or allowing other people to tell you what you should be. So, um, for instance, we're moving into a downtown area, and there are some who think, well, we should be more involved, for instance, in ministering to the homeless. There are the people that think, no, Grand has already got enough homeless people on it. The business owners don't want more homelessness there. First question when we announced that we were going to go downtown was, what are they going to do, make it a soup kitchen? Anxiety, right? So um, you can't, if, if you've got one side saying this and another side saying that, and you are an anxious leader, you can't move. It paralyzes you. So that's why your churches, and my guess, if you go, boy, we're really not trying to do anything. We're not sure where we're going with this. It's an anxious church. Um, and so the way, one way around that is to define who you are. If you need to completely, you know, do that emotional process, dying that we talked about yesterday, where you, you know, it's an inward thing. I'm, we're, we're getting rid of our ego. We're getting rid of our, we're going to erase our, our current mission statement and values are gone. We're going to start over. Uh, and we're going to define who it is we are, what we are about, and, uh, and take it from there. Freeing up energy. Uh, we talked about that a little bit yesterday. That is... Uh, most churches of Christ I'm familiar with, you have a weekly elders meeting. Uh, you still have a Sunday morning Bible class, a Sunday morning attendance, and a Wednesday night, some sort of gathering there on Wednesday night, and in many cases a small group on top of that. Um, and you can do that, um, but it, you create a lot of sideways energy in your church system when you do that. Um, the, this particular kind of energy I was talking about is the energy you waste on going nowhere, like in a leadership meeting. Elders fighting with each other, preacher fighting with the elders. And I realized when, I, when I've gone through, now that I've gone through a period where I have no elders meetings, I got 80% of my energy back. And that told me something. I, ministry itself is, is joyful, very exciting and loving and nice most of the time. But those meetings that I have been in over the years, and I mean, I've been in some, not only that, but I've been in everybody else's elders meetings. Um, and I've watched, uh, you know, those of you who've, who've heard me tell some stories in the past, I've, I've watched guys swing at each other. Uh, I've seen uh, people uh, invite the other guy outside uh, into the parking lot. I've seen cussing. I've seen, uh, and of course nobody knows that because the door is closed. And nobody will ever know that stuff and who said what and all that. But that's what goes, that's, that's how tense it gets back there. So if you've not experienced that before, um, just know that, take my word for it, or ask any preacher in the room, that's a tough, tough room, and it, it really hurts your energy. So I recommended yesterday, first of all, meet less often. You know, meet once a month, not once a week. Wednesday nights, don't do it on Wednesday night. That's like the peak of exhaustion for everybody. And if your preacher just did that, it's the middle of his week, and he just preached, probably, or taught something, no energy. Think about how to free up actual physical bodily energy for what you're trying to do. So that when you're ready to move, you can actually move. Freeing up focus. <clears throat> so we talked about how uh, different things that kind of take you off. Right now, politics is a huge one. Um, you know, and, and preachers are doing their own thing to, uh, you know, get, um, inject anxiety into their own congregations by getting up and addressing things in a particular way, as opposed to trying to do it in a non-anxious uh, leadership way. And so you have... The church doesn't know right now. A lot of churches don't know. Or which, which thing are we supposed to be worrying about the most today? Is it the president? Is it uh, me too? Is it race? Is it, um, you know, all of these things. And so you can get up there and say the kingdom of God is by far the most important thing. But when you're teaching and, and you're getting up there and what you talk about the most are all of those things, they won't believe you. And so what ends up happening is that you've injected anxiety into your church, so now you've created uh, a, a very tense situation in your own congregation. Good luck trying to go anywhere. Um, you know, so focus being something that says, as I said yesterday, it's not that social justice and, and the gospel itself uh, are divorced from each other, it's just that they're not the same. And you have to understand that um, if you want to do it in a non-anxious way, you, you preach Christ crucified, and then you can explain how does this then translate into certain things, and I would encourage you don't do it too often. And I would, I would, I think you have to get, you get, we really got to get careful with things that suggest that, um, you know, Jesus of Nazareth w thought the same thing that I think about public policy in 2018 in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. See, it's one thing to say that this principle could apply there; it's another to say Jesus said, 
where you're putting words in God's mouth and saying, no, he's specifically for this. You've got to be really careful with that. Job's friends found out that God didn't like it when you put words in his mouth. You need to be very careful, and we who teach are going to be held accountable for what we say, okay? Uh, growing your own food. I'm going to spend everything else today on this. <clears throat> the future belongs to the farmers, okay? If you can grow your own food, and I mean this people-wise, okay? People within your church uh, and people um, that will, will love your church and, and, and uh, to where you're actually providing surplus staff to the body of Christ. Meaning you're not going into creating another empty seed by taking somebody else's minister. But you can actually grow from within. Uh, if you decided today, at most of the churches in here, I'm going to guess, if you decide we need a youth minister, um, if you already have one, there's the length of the process of letting him go and transitioning him. Then you have the composition of the committee that does it. After that, you have you bring in a number of different candidates because nobody, even if you love the first guy, we all know the first rule of committees is you, you can't seize the opportunity. Uh, we have to beat this to death. So you bring in three or four or five people, uh, else uh, now you're probably six months in, and uh, now you start arguing about which one should get the job. You go on and on and on, and by the time that happens, if they're in another church, they have to transition back out and make it all the way to your church for usually a fairly hefty cost. Um, and the odds, um, you know, basically, uh, if you bat 500 on the people you hire from outside your church, you're doing all right. Whereas you could, <clears throat> by creating that leadership pipeline, create an environment where you can hire almost exclusively from inside your church. And I like it for a bunch of reasons. I used to just think, hey, no, I don't want to lose that family if it goes wrong or, or whatever. But you're going to lose families anyways. So you're going to lose uh, people when the guy that you just brought in from Missouri doesn't work out. So um, if you do this, and I'm, I'm going to walk you through how we do it at New Vintage, and it's still very much a work in progress. It's not, it's not even so much of a process. It's a philosophy of how we move people along, okay? Um, so let me, let me start here. Um, if you're looking to grow your own food, <clears throat> understand that um, when you look inside your church, what you don't want to do ever, ever, ever is, is simply say, uh, I will only look at people from inside the church. We'll start there. Uh, you don't want to look only because some of you come from churches, 30, 40 people, and you go, nobody in our church is a functional human being. I would not hire anyone, okay? Okay, so then the question becomes, all right, where do we get somebody like that or whatever? You will have at least a person <coughs> in any church. I've been in some of the weirdest ones around, and it's not that hard to tell when you're in a meeting of, with, for instance, a search committee or something like that. You can tell who in that room would be the best hire. Like, if they were going to work here as, in a professional role, you know, and, and we just use the term, they, they get it. Like, they get it. So it's, it's the elder who sits there quiet through the whole meeting, and everybody's ranting and raving and everything, and it comes in with the E.F. Hutton word at the end, which is totally Jesus-based. It's beautiful, and everybody listens to what they say, you know, and they choose their battles, and they, you know. Um, so when you identify them, I, I look for <clears throat> a few things. Uh, we used, we stole this from <clears throat> Bill Hybels, character, competency, chemistry, and then we added fit. So character, a person, man, woman of character. Do they have a track record of being um, uh, walking with God? And the way we put it in kind of our staff covenant is you need to have a growing relationship with Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It means your relationship needs to be a participle. There's movement there. Um, and so you are doing what you can to continue to grow as a Christian. Um, they pass that test, chemistry, which is the fastest way to find your way out of New Vintage. Uh, not playing well in the sandbox with others, gossiping, slander, um, uh, people who I would just suggest don't like people very much. Um, and, and, and this is something, I'll just throw this in here as a rabbit trail. Great, great book on leadership called Leadership and Self-Deception. I use that in the class I teach here too. Uh, it's by the Arbinger Institute. And they talk about how easy it is um, for people to pick up on how you are toward them. Just how you feel toward them. Your general disposition. Do they like me, hate me? Do they think I'm stupid? Do they, uh, do they think I'm racist? Do they think I'm whatever? And once they feel like you don't like them, uh, or if they feel like you really do, uh, their entire disposition changes, and your ability to lead them is proportionate in some ways to how they pick up on how you are toward them. 
So if I get up in the pulpit and I talk about, for instance, um, all women are this way, and I say something like that, or I rail against women, or I rail against whatever, and what happens is I get up and I go, I, I make that rant, okay, well at that point, now the church is not, is not going to be led by me easily. All the women of the church are going to sit there with their arms folded, brows furrowed, and even if their husband thinks it's a great idea, it'll never happen because they don't think it's a good idea. And, uh, and I just set the table for my own, uh, my own thing. Okay, so chemistry is when uh, that they get what makes our church click. Uh, I often do, do what I call the cell phone test. I'm tired, I'm in a parking lot, and I'm on my way home from a trip. Cell phone rings and I see their name. What do I think? How do I feel? Would I be, oh, cool. So-and-so's calling, or, oh boy, so-and-so's calling, you're going, oh, not again, or whatever. And don't sell your soul for competence. Competence can be taught. Jerk can't be untaught. <laughs> Very hard to do, okay? So I would say look for people who are good chemistry people. Uh, uh, competency, obviously, you need. It's probably third most important on that list. Can they do the job well? Um, and then fit is... Would, would they be able to get our staff culture? Would they fit in there naturally? So ours at New Gen is very playful. Uh, if, you have a, if you are very, uh, we'd love to poke fun at each other. Um, that's how we show affection, actually, on staff. So if you have a hard time, you get your feelings hurt super easily or whatever, um, you're probably going to have a hard time on our staff because we, we love to make fun of people. There are inside jokes that go on. We text each other throughout the day and different funny things. And so if you have no sense of humor, you're not going to fit here. Um, so <clears throat> the way you do that is when you interview people, uh, create a social gathering with no agenda. There's no interview or anything. And I would try to do at least a couple of those, and I would probably invite all the spouses of the people that are on that committee, not just you, because sometimes women pick up on things men don't, and sometimes men are, um, they, they, they come in very skeptically, and you kind of need both, I think, to be able to, 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 uh, to hire well. Um, we have... <clears throat> Uh, here, um, on unleashing the actual gifts of the body, I talked to you about it. Don't put a sign-up sheet in the lobby. If you value that role, and every role at your church is important, that doesn't mean sign up to preach next Sunday. Uh, you, you, you'd be crazy to do that. No church would do that, right? But we'll say sign up to teach kids. Sign up to be at the front door, welcoming every person who comes on the campus. Um, and not all roles are created equal, but you want to matchmake people, so you look for what are they passionate about, and then you look for what... Uh, they might be good at. Um, let's see here. Um, committing yourself to generosity. <clears throat> Let me add this. I wrote, a, I wrote my D-Man project thesis on um, giving patterns in churches. Okay, So I looked at the giving records of 100 different churches. And I looked at how the churches that seemed to do well with this um, came better. And, I, and essentially, in the summation, I'll sum it up for you so you don't have to read it. It's boring. People... Uh, we are so far behind on what we're capable of doing in terms of generosity, it would make your head spin. And if you want to look at the, at the place in the spiritual life where people are the most fundamentally dishonest, it has to do with money. It's as old as Ananias and Sapphira. Or Cain and Abel, if you want to go back that far. Uh, I'm going to give God the veggies, not the meat. And God says, but I like meat. Why don't you do it over again? If, if you do the right thing, when I, when I bless you like I blessed him, he doesn't want to do it and he kills him which is not that dissimilar to what can happen to with church leaderships when they get up and ask for money from the church, okay? Um, <clears throat> if you want to, um, I've, I've talked about this in years past, I don't want to bear down on this, it's too hard here, but uh, those of you who've been to my classes before, but there is a little rule that the fundraising uh, sphere uh, talks about, and, and I've found it to be generally true over the years, Now it's called the rule of a third. So if you look at your books and you clean up your roles, okay? Uh, and so you know everybody that's in there, 30 or people, give uh, $10 a week or more, only a third. A third of them give somewhere between zero and, and, five, and $10 a week, and a third give nothing. Now, when I heard that, I go, nah, not our church, you know. Our people are generous, man. Uh, and lo and behold, we were right spot on. And so the difference between that church and your church, where you see the big gap in offerings, is in the people who are giving more than 10, because these people are giving a lot more than 10. It's true if you go to inner city churches. It's true if you go, it doesn't matter. It's not a demographically based thing. So I want you to think about that given the fact that uh, what you see here, this is $10. 
Okay. So what I just told you is essentially two-thirds of everybody that's in your church gives less than that a week. I mean, that's really astonishing. You want something else that will depress you. Uh, anybody in here do, do, do math for a living? You're, you're a mathematician or anything? It won't take that much. Take your offerings, divide it by the number of family units that you have in your church. So take your annual budget, say it's uh, $500,000. Let's say you have 100 families in there. Then what would the per capita giving number be? Anybody? Well, I know. Is somebody going to say it? 50. Okay. Okay. So and I told you why that, that might not always be a good thing yesterday, too. All right. It means you have a lot of older, established Christians in your church. When you're drawing young people and newer Christians, your per capita should go down. So, you know, an odd paradoxical thing, having your, your offerings, your per capita go down is a good thing. What you don't want to see is that because what you'll do is let's just assume that everybody in your church was tithing. Statistically, we know it's about 1.5% of people in an average church are tithing. Okay. Let's say they were given, <clears throat> if you had a $500,000 budget with 100 families and you assumed that everybody would be tithing in that church, what's the median income of the people in your church? If they're given, so. so 500 a week. If it's 50, what, if they're given 10%, it's 50 bucks a week. If they're given, yeah, it would be 50 bucks a week. And so then work that forward, right? $24,000 a year is the median income of your church. How many of you actually think the average church member in your church makes $24,000 a year? Nope. <clears throat> and if you're in Southern California, your average family probably makes six figures. Okay? Because they have to, to survive out here. And so think about what they, if, if, so then how many families would it take to actually meet your budget if they were making $100,000? 50, right? I mean, so you're, you're basically doing it by factor of two. You're underachieving by factor of two if you work with the tithe concept. What I realized was, and I stood up in front of our church, it was not the one I'm in now, um, but in a different era of my life, and I did the math, our, the median income of our church was about $9,000 a year. And this was a very wealthy church that had a parking lot full of Lincolns, they had huge houses. $9,000 a year? We're doing, the people are doing all they can. <laughs> The heck they are. Not even close. Not even close. I mean, church is so far behind on this that it's ridiculous. And the reason they can get away with it is because we say um, we keep it all private, right? And we wouldn't want to do it. And, I, and I've, I've, I'm going I'm to rant on this now for about five minutes, okay? So just <laughs> adrenaline is taking over. The medication's going down. So... Um, <clears throat> I've had people come up and when they leave the church say, before they do that, say that they, uh, you know, and I'm going to stop giving. So I go back and I look and I see what their giving record is and they don't have one. <laughs> they never gave. Um, I've watched people uh, commit to pledge campaigns uh, and not fulfill it and then take a cruise with their family. To whatever, and leave the church to pay their bill with interest because we we took made the mistake of taking them at their word. Uh, I have watched uh, churches with immense potential not be able to go anywhere because they have no resources and their leadership is too cowardly to get up and, and challenge the church to to do it, or because they don't have a vision for the church and it's hard to raise money without vision. Um, for God's sake, you should never use the word need publicly unless it's has to be used. Um, vision sells way better than need. So you have a need safety valve, right? But if you get up and you say, we have a need, I have a need, and the church comes through, what are you doing? <laughs> you're reacting, mm -hmm. right? You're not being proactive. You're re reacting to, we're in crisis, help us out. Okay, and then give to the limit of your crisis. I'll throw this in. Most churches of Christ have way too much money in the bank. Um, I've seen uh, churches of 50 people that have over half a million dollars in the bank. Their building's paid for. They have no staff. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. At some point, you know, you have to go. The reason the people gave the money in the first place was so it could be used to mention. Write a check to an organization if you need to. But, but do something with it. And it's not that you need to be hanging 10 over the death line financially all the time. But if you, um, 
if you, um, I guess if you if you just kind of uh, assume that that money uh, is, you know, and hold on, okay, I got so many things going on here. People say you need an emergency fund in the church, and what do we do if there's a fire of the building? Well, that's why you carry insurance. Yeah. Okay? And do you really think that your church would just sit there and do nothing if their building burned to the ground? You don't think in the day of GoFundMe, the community would rally around you and help you build another one or whatever? And, and we're sitting there, and we use it as a rationale for stagnancy, and because the root issue is we're too afraid to spend money to do anything. If the, What if the preacher leaves and a bunch of families go with him? Now we're in trouble. Remember the old-fashioned idea <clears throat> that God would take care of the church? <laughs> just, th- just thinking out loud, right? So um, there's a church, um, an independent Christian church that I'm aware of. They have 18,000 people. They have $100,000 in the bank. I was just with them last week. Okay. $100,000 in the bank. Uh, New Vintage, uh, you know, we, we usually carry about 50 in the bank at all times. Uh, and that's really to cover a, a cash crisis because we would take some nosedive of giving, but we also know our people well enough to know if we ever had the need, they'd make it up. Um, strategically, uh, what can we do to get giving up? First of all, IV, drip it in. Uh, I usually preach a series on giving every year. I, um, and the reason is it's destroying people's lives every bit as much as sex or uh, addictions of other kinds. I speak very plainly about it. Uh, I don't. I don't say. You know, God just really calls us to give, and we all should do that. I get very specific. Um, I'll get. I'll tell you how specific I got. And it wasn't. I, we were in the middle of a. This is when I was at Highland Oaks in Dallas. We were in the middle of a camp, capital campaign. I got a big set of nasty emails from the church saying, you know, why are we spending all this money on buildings? And I'd had about enough at that point. I was getting my head kicked in. Frankly, I was just. I was just. Uh, you know going through a tough time. Capital campaigns are brutal on preachers. And I happened to be going through my daily devotional reading, and I got to the book of Haggai. A lot of people probably going, what's in Haggai? I didn't know either at that point. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, and I read this, and it's about them. They're trying to, um, to rebuild the, the temple. And God looks down, and he sees the job they're doing with it, and he goes, Daniel, you see the first temple? Um, you know, that, I like that. What you guys are doing. What is this? And then Haggai gets up to the people and he says, why do you guys live in houses? Yeah, paneled houses. Fancy stuff. The equivalent now is fancy cars, fancy whatever. And then, and then sit there while God's house is in ruins. And then sit there and... And I mean, so I went right after it. And I got up and I got, I just said, guys, look. And I, that's $9,000 a year median income. I go, you'd never know that. You'd never know that we were so against buildings by the houses we live in. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to want to sell one of the houses they own to help us out on this? I mean, in, in particular, I mean, we had people with three, four, five houses. And you're getting on me because we're, we're trying to do something for the church that's long overdue? Are you kidding me? So part of this is <clears throat> having a point where there's a prophetic word. And here's the other one. Most churches, your elders are not even close to tithing. Okay, and you need to know that. Um, now, I'd love to say they all were. Now, often what you have among the eldership is you do have the largest givers in the church, but they're not close to tithing. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to use it in this class if it's okay. I think, I mean, tithing is something that if if there's no question to me, and we can we can talk after or whatever if you like, um, that that's the biblical benchmark. In the New Testament, the bar seems to go way up, yeah. not down. 100%. Yeah. So uh, don't for whatever you say, don't get up there. Don't get up there and tell the people that if you're poor, you shouldn't give. Do we remember the story of the widow's mite? Yeah. <clears throat> right? He didn't say, no, 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 wait, 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 stop. You shouldn't have to do that. Because if you do that, you might have to sacrifice something. And there are people over here who have a lot more, and they should give more so that you don't have to give anything. That's because we think giving is about money. It's not. It's about sacrifice. It's about worldview. It's about lordship of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I, would, I would avoid saying that. 
we had a, uh, we when we did our um, our last campaign at New Vintage to do a remodel on our building, uh, we had some of the some really terrible things happen. I'll tell you one that's beautiful, and I'm going to tell it as often as I can. Uh, there's a little old lady at our church who's pretty under the uh, under the Mendoza line financially, to put it mildly. She lived, she has a house. She lives with a bunch of cats and uh, her well, her her able um, son and grandkids, and everybody lives there, but they have no money at all. None of them have jobs. They all just live in this backyard kind of situation. And so um, I had gone through uh, and, um, a series on giving and everything like that before it, and she, um, the, uh, I, I walked out and there, she's going through our trash cans. And I go, so-and-so? I go, I go, what are you doing? Do you need, you know, and I, I was under, do you need help? As I come to this is what I'm thinking in my head. And she's doing it so that she could take them and recycle them and give money to the campaign. Um. <laughs> And I go, that right there uh, is rather breath breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Now, and it changes the way that the rich folks among us uh, look at, at the process mm -hmm. of giving, right? She wanted to be able to do it, tried to find a way to do it, versus somebody who goes, how dare you ask me for that? Mm -hmm. see, the, see the difference? Um, so um, with the way that, that I come at it, um, we, uh, I would not, uh, I know some of this is water under the bridge for some of you and you can't really unsee it or take it back. I don't think you should tell people what staff makes. Parable of the vineyard workers, right? Everybody loves the, what they're getting paid until they actually know what the other guy makes and now all of a sudden every, your salary's not very good anymore. You hate it, right? Um, I don't think staff should know what one another makes. It's none of their business. Exactly. Well, I don't think it's, it's the church's business either. So, you know, I started asking, you know, somebody goes, well, how much money do you make? How much do you make? <laughs> well, that's different. And, 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 of course, their response is, well, I pay your salary. And I'm thinking in my mind, your giving pays my salary? No, it doesn't, you know. Um, and I don't mean to be mean or anything, but you just have to understand the level of deception that goes on in the average church in America. It's astonishing. Sad. It is, and and we just have to be. We have to look at it like any other spiritual problem, and address it. And it starts with leadership, elders, and your staff, committing to tithing, or something like it. If you don't like tithing as a word or concept, find one that's an equivalent for you that you do feel good about, and challenge everybody to do it. Otherwise, stop asking the church to give because you're not willing to do it yourself. You know, every time if I were to stand up and say don't beat your kids while well, I'm beating my kids, I would be viewed as a hypocrite, right? But it's okay for me to stand up and to encourage the church to give when I'm not giving. Okay, come on. we got to just start thinking through this stuff. Uh, I would talk about it <clears throat> regularly. I use it as an illustration all the time instead of doing a series on giving. Um, so if, um, as you're going through, if you're studying 1 Timothy, don't skip over 1 Timothy 6. You know, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. Or encourage those who are rich in this world to be generous. This matters. These texts really matter. If you're in Acts, don't skip over Ananias and Sapphira. If you're in, uh, you know, any book virtually of the entire Bible, it's there. And so point it out when it's there. You don't have to spend the whole sermon on it. Just to use it as an illustration. Or if you're talking about generosity, tell stories like this gal going through the garbage and then the, the counterpoint to it, which is where greed really takes the church over. Um, um, uh, leadership pipeline. I promised some of you I would talk about that. So, at new at new vintage, we've gotten ourselves finally. It took seven years, but we're there um, by God's grace to get to a point where we can actually start feeding churches people instead of because we don't have room for them. So we had this year we have four homegrown interns that'll be with us, and we had one we we couldn't we didn't have any room for. It. We didn't have any money and space and office space, frankly, for them. So. Um, we actually are, are going to take that up, but I would love to have been able to give her to another church because she's a great kid and really could, is going to do some great things. The way, that, <clears throat> the way that I would do it, it begins with being able to identify talent. And so what I do is I'm always scouring, frankly, social media. You're going to laugh at that. Um, I'm away from the recorder. I have to go back over here. Um, I, um, I follow our people's thoughts on social media all the time um, because it tells me what's, what's going on in their head on a day in and a day out and we've been able to find out actually what they're good at 
that's where they show you their hobbies. And so we had a girl, um, she was 16 at the time, she put up a, a um, she put up a, uh, an Instagram video of her playing the guitar and singing uh, Poor Wayfaring Stranger by Johnny Cash on the guitar. Absolutely blew me away. And I called Peter Wilson if I could, you need to hire her, like get an internship with this kid like right now. Turns out she was, a, she was already scheduled to be a, a worship leader for a big area-wide teen event. And uh, so we ended up bringing her in and um, I mean, she's, she's just unbelievable, unbelievable musician. Great kid, great heart. Well, she was just sitting there and I probably wouldn't have ever invited her to do it because she was too young. What 15 or 16 year old usually is good enough to be on the stage of a church that's doing that kind of thing really well? Not many, but she was one of them. And I only saw it because I happened to be on Instagram. There it is, boom. Or you find a guy that <clears throat> you know is an avid fisherman and you live in a lake city, all right? That might be your next men's minister. Somebody to work with men. Yeah, real quickly, I'm getting, I'm getting short on time. Uh, best? Facebook. Adults are, are better on Facebook. Instagram is the place to be for kids. And then Twitter is great for hearing people rant. I don't really care about Twitter. <laughs> um, so true. Yeah, my, my Twitter accounts basically become rants about baseball. Like, I don't want to put a lot of spiritual stuff out there because it's too ugly out there and people, people get ugly out there. So Facebook and Instagram are great, I think. Um, uh, we have another kid that I just noticed that whenever he was around, the middle schoolish boys were kind of drawn to his personality, and he seemed to be able to tolerate them. <laughs> so we thought, Let's get this guy working with the youth ministry, right? But it's 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 developing a mentality that we are always hiring. I'm always looking for people to plug into the right areas. Greeters, you can think through that. If you have people that are out in the entryways of the church to to greet people, don't just sign them up. Think about what kind of person should be in that role. They need to be nice. Yeah. They need to smile. Age. <clears throat> could matter. I don't think it matters as much as we think. Uh, you can have uh, one of the coolest things if you're brand new and you go up to a church. I love pairing elderly people with kids. So you almost have like a grandparent kid kind of thing or hipster married couple, a, a different one, and know where people enter your facility from. Do they all come up the same spot? In our case, all the newbies come up the front steps. All of our people pack in the back, park, back parking lots. So we have like our established people that have a lot of you know, influence among our, our members and stuff like that. They're nice people. They're greeting at the back. And then we try to put people that are more like the, the type of people that we usually draw, um, that we are most effective at reaching at the front. And then we train them. We tell them, here's what you do. Don't point. You should never point when you're here. What I mean by that is, hey, do you know where the bathroom is? Yeah, it's over there. Oh. Yeah, let me show you. And you walk with them. Don't point. Um, if they come up and they're upset about something, how do you handle it? Keep smiling. Because it, your smile will train your mouth what to say. Um, it's, it's tiny little things, but don't just throw it out there sloppily. Um, and so it's about matchmaking the gifts of the church with the church. Um, <clears throat> it's not trying to teach the eye how to be a, a hand. All right? uh, technique and grit are... Um, technique is good. Grit is better. Because the reality is what's going to keep you from being able to move forward is going to be butting heads with people and doing all those things. And if you're not prepared to tolerate pain, uh, whatever you decide to do won't happen. Your technique is worthless. So if you can develop grit, Angela Duckworth wrote a great little book called Grit. Uh, there's another one I would recommend called, uh, if you just want to amp up and feel like you want to headbutt somebody, read um, a, a former Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink wrote a book called Discipline Equals Freedom. Uh, and it's, it's just incredible. And he, has, he goes on this rant about how people go, I just want to know, I want to know how to, how to lose weight. And he goes, if you want to know how to lose weight, lose weight. Yeah. If you want to know, how do, I eat, how do I eat less carbs? You eat less carbs. <laughs> I mean, he, it's like, I want to go to this thing to figure out how to do X or Y. And it's really, it's, it's, it's not unlike the way that Proverbs speaks. Um, the beginning... <clears throat> The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so in the church world, a lot of the practices that we need is, is just about developing the, the, the stamina and the grit to be able to move through um, a lot of these initiatives. All right? um, 
<laughs> Sorry. Like, I kind of want to move her. I hate sand time for you. Um, so uh, let me go ahead and, and uh, we've got about 13, 14 minutes here. Um, is it any one of these points? Just give me a point. Like, what would be most helpful for me to go back to at this point? Any of these? And it could have been from some of yesterday. So I, can, I don't mind refreshing. For me, the developing grid. How do you do it as a leader? Um, I think you pace yourself for one thing, so that when you try to tackle grit, it doesn't tackle you. Uh, I think your skin gets more leathery as you take, as you uh, as you develop. Um, as you experience some pain and you make your way through it, you become more confident. Um, I think uh, leadership at churches can help doing this by not sheltering their people from everything. Uh, by, by not saying, oh, we don't want to tell the church that, or oh, we don't want to do this. If you have a bad year, tell them you had a bad year. Or said, I would probably put it that way. I'd probably put it night more benevolently than that, but I would say, you know what, guys, we were really hoping this would happen. Uh, but, but you know what, it just didn't happen. And so we did the best we can't we could or whatever or when and that decision didn't pan out the way we wanted to so uh, we're sorry and we'll try to make a better decision next time that builds confidence they don't and what it does is it actually it's kind of your church then has to learn how to manage its anxiety because they go you go oh no leaders are they made a mistake what do i do with that or whatever and when they see that it's fine to you they're fine um they think letting your church stay stagnant and not move anywhere for too long develops laziness and a lack of grit. Um, and so there's usually, at any given point in time, New Vintage is doing something to change. Okay, it doesn't mean that the whole church is changing every day. But there are strategic spots where we're doing things a lot. And we use the term trial basis or beta test when we do it. So they know and expect change. So, hey, I got up. Here's an announcement that's tricky. I was trying to help them understand, okay, right now, God has not brought us our executive pastor role, the, the, my wing guy, my, my person that can back me up in the pulpit, the senior leader that could um, help op run operations at the church and adult ministries at the church. So here's how we're going to do this for a while. We're going to hire this guy. Um, some of you know the name Caleb Kaltenbach. He's on our teaching team at, at Advantage now. And he's going to come in for six months and do this, but there's an end point to it. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to do this, 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 and this, and here's why we're bringing him here. And so when he gets here, uh, I'd ask him to, I'd ask you guys to love him the way that you love me and my family. Um, and I think he's going to be a big help to us, you know, over the next several months. Okay, well, that raises us for people that aren't used to any kind of contract basis, like a six-month run. Like, no, the guy's supposed to be here forever. <laughs> That's the only way we hire, right? Um, and so if you leave, you're disloyal. Or whatever, but what if what if we did it? So I got up there and I did it, and people handled it really well. Um, uh, you know, I, when I got up, my next announcement will be um, we signed and sold our building this week. That's the next announcement I'll make. Okay, that'll be a big one. But um, our people, that building, uh, I've done a good job by preparing them to understand that building was given to us. It doesn't belong to us. And for people that say, yeah, but I paid part of the remodel. I can say, me too. Yep. And um, let, me, let me swing back to this. Um, it is okay, this is my opinion. Uh, it is okay for leaders. I would, I would not necessarily do individual dollar figures, but I think it's a good thing for leaders to get up and tell them, like I do at New Vintage, your entire staff ties. Mm -hmm. And we know that because we just had it, we all have it direct deposited to the church. And I want you to know that, not so you know we're all, but we're, we're not asking you to do something we're not doing. When you do a capital campaign, get up and say, your entire leadership here, the board, the staff, um, have together pledged X. They don't know who gave what, right? So, uh, and that number usually ought to be around 40% of what you're trying to get, if you're actually going to be successful. So if you're going after a million dollars, 400000 of it should come from your leadership team. And then you go to the church and say, we're asking you guys to pick up the other 600 and they're going to go, well, that seems easy. And, and when they hear the number that the leadership did, it, it blows them away that that's how confident they are. Uh, in our case, I got up and told them when we bought, um, when we put these buildings in escrow, we hadn't had a chance to appropriately really give the church time to process it. And so we passed the hat in our leadership team 
and put the earnest money down on the buildings ourselves outside the church because we didn't feel like it was right to take the church's money and do it without communicating with the church first. But we told them we did that. This, and what it did was it sent a message, we are really behind this to the point that we put our own money into this uh, in advance because we didn't want to communicate, not be able to communicate this change to you. Um, How did your... Uh, your I'm here and I'll get to you. Huh? Excuse me. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Just a super practical question. I'm, I'm in a church of about 100. Budget time comes around. Everybody's happy, all agreeing. The biggest discussion always, whether it's too low or too high, is my wage. Yeah. Um, and I'm in a church of 100, so I can't hide it with a bunch of other people's. Got I'm it. the only staff member. So what, what, where could you hide But it's already it? out, then they already know what you made. Pardon me? Do, do they publish it? They, they hand it out to everyone. Okay. I've said to people, too, well, what do you make? And they don't want to tell me. Yeah, right? well. So I, well, if it's already out there, it's out there, and then I think you just, um, I think you're, you're um, oh, man. The, the, there's an entire way of looking at staff in general in Churches of Christ that has to change. Mm -hmm. And one of them is thinking that whatever you're being paid, you're being paid too much. Yeah. Um, in reality, anybody who's effective pays their own salary easily. And that's why you can hire almost on an ongoing basis. If you hire the right people, you'll be able to pay for them. Now, as far as how it feels, I don't think that's more of a you thing and you being confident in how God's working through you and feeling like, yeah, I'm going to do what I can to make sure whatever I get paid, I may, I'm worth every penny. Um, but if it's out there, that's a little hard to unsee. Um, but I would work to a system that the subsequent people that come on staff at your church, that maybe we don't do that. Um, you know, it's not about lack of transparency. At our church, it's not that hard. You can count up the number of people on staff, look at the annual budget, and go, even if the whole budget was going to them, they still don't make very much money. Um, and then, uh, is this a more a matter of, two? do they, uh, I can't ask you, oh, never mind. Come up to me afterwards. Um, <laughs> let me go back up here with this gentleman. I, that's the best I can do for you on that spur of the moment. Probably if I thought about it a little more, I could probably do something better than that. When you... Uh Shared the need. I don't know if it needs the right <coughs> word now, but anyhow, the staff came up with 40% of what you. Staff and board. Hmm? Staff and the board, board are elder equivalent. Uh, what sort of reaction was, did the staff and board have when it was proposed that they should they should do this? Uh, everybody was excited to a person. Um, and that would go back to, I guess, this bigger issue here of, of generosity as a culture. Um, we, our church is a little unique in that we're one of the few church starts where the planters put their own money in, meaning we did not get anything from outside. So our church doesn't look at us askant like I think other churches mm -hmm. do because they know we already bled for the thing. And if we were in it for the money, we'd have never started. But if you're here, that's a cultural thing. I'm simply saying, look, if we're ever going to get stuff done that we're targeting, we have to we have to look for opportunities to be generous, because it blesses the heart of God. God gets happy when His people start being generous. Um, I would um, I would ask your preacher, whoever they may be, to um, to preach on it regularly, at least annually. And I wouldn't say just one sermon. I'd say at least two or three. And I would, um, uh, you're, you're looking at a culture shift that just has to happen. If people are sitting there going, I don't want to do this because I don't want to have to give to it, that's a bigger problem than just, you know. So I would just say start working on the culture of generosity and hammering that nail for a few years and then be ready then, yeah. Yes, sir. Which do you prefer to minister? Live in a church-owned house or provide your own housing? Oh, boy. Um, all right. I think in some environments, every preacher would prefer to own their own house that I know. Um, <clears throat> in Southern California, where I am, cost is astronomically high. There are a lot of creative ways to do that. I'll give you one. Um, this, uh, <clears throat> I've seen churches do deals where they buy a house for a minister uh, because they have buildings and resources and can get a loan. So they do it, they buy it, the church owns the house, and the payments can be just taken out of the guy's paycheck. So there's security there. If the church ever gets in a bind, they can sell it, you know. But then after some period of time, equity transfers to the person. And they leave, the house either gets sold or 
uh, some of those kinds of things. Uh, and the church, you know, can decide, do we want to help out with a down payment on this or not? Usually, um, <laughs> to you preachers in the room, don't buy quickly. Figure out if you're going to stay there before you buy. Mm-hmm. Learn that one from personal experience. That's a freebie. Don't buy a house the second you get to that church. Church will take it the wrong way and they'll say he's not committing, but you're, you are committed when you buy a house because if you try to go in and out of that, you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars for the privilege of leaving, whereas if you just signed a lease on something, you walk out without having to pony that up. You're losing money when you, lose, when you leave your job then in a massive way, and if you do that certainly more than once, it's really going to impact your family's financial future going forward. But I, to answer your question directly, I think everybody would want their own house if they had it. Um, but I don't think it's reasonable of them to ask for that right out of the chute and with zero commitment. So if, um, you know, if they're willing to stay a while and whatever, you can incentivize that. Um, elevator or escalator plans for uh, young guys particularly are, are pretty common where they say, okay, we're going to start you here. Next year you get a $10,000 jump. You stay another three years, you get another $10,000 jump or things like that. And you can do something like that with real estate. Um, and what happens is, I've seen churches too, if he's making the payment <coughs> or she's making the payment on that house, that um, they just let him keep all the equity in that house that develops. So in a place like Southern California, you can do pretty well. That could be one of the smartest things you ever did. And it doesn't actually cost the church any money at all. Mm-hmm. So it's like your preacher getting an enormous raise that changes their life trajectory and it costs the church nothing. So it's a really creative way to do it. Um, you can pay your staff a lot without using money. And that sounds weird, but um, here's what we do at New Vintage. Uh, we have an unlimited vacation policy. Mm-hmm. You want to go on vacation? Go. Ask, don't tell, and then go. And what we found is people want less vacations when that happens. Um, you don't need to go on vacation every five minutes if your system is not toxic, right? So unlimited vacation. Uh, we also... Um, Basically, our schedule, we have everybody in the office two days a week. And the other, the other two, one's a remote day, um, and then uh, one's a, a basically a flex day. You can, you can come in or not. Uh, but there's not, uh, we don't, the job we're paying them for is what they're doing. We're not paying them to sit in an office. So if you can get your job done, great. And here's what we found. Wives love their husbands working at New Vintage. Husbands love their wives working at New Vintage. You know why? Because dad can pick the kids up from school if he wants to. Dad can go to their games if he wants to. Dad can do all this. So it's a very family-friendly thing. So we're paying them in other ways other than having to raise their salary up every, you know. Uh, I'm a big fan of bonuses rather than pay raises. Uh, that's a more of a financial thing, and elders typically kind of like that too because the, the base isn't going up over time as fast. Um, but if it's like, okay, we're going to give you a $200 bonus, um, don't do that. Make it a good one. Make it count. And, uh, and you can incentivize it with, with things. You know, if X and Y happens, then we'll do this. If X and Y doesn't happen, then we'll do that. Just make sure it's not creepy land where you're incentivizing them to do something, you know, immoral to make results look better. What <laughs> <laughs> we like, um, <clears throat> going back to leadership pipeline, we stopped asking, we, gauging our staff's success based on how many num- on the numbers, meaning how many kids came to the youth ministry gathering. We gauge them on how many, how are you doing at multiplying leaders among the teenagers? So if you said, hey, we had 10 more kids come to our youth events this year than last year, and you created fewer leaders, that's a loss, not a win. So um, right now, our team ministry is doing great. And, and uh, I'll do one, I got one more in me uh, before my voice is, is shot. Any, any, any subject, anything? Yes, sir, real quick. Yeah, about the giving. Um, how do you uh, relieve the anxiety of people about the job situation? You know, when I was a kid, uh, after World War II, and uh, people had a job, they had a pension uh, filled out and all that. Most people, even if they have a job today, uh, which may not pay that much anymore, they, uh, they look at themselves as a trapeze artist without a net. Uh, and, uh, you know, because there's no guarantee of uh, building up a pension or, you know, yeah. you have your families to think about and so on. Uh, what well, I mean, as far as anxiety about job situation, if you're in ministry in some ways, it's one of the most secure jobs you can have because there always is going to be a need for clergy. On the other hand, the job at your exact location is one of the most unstable. <laughs> so um, that's one of the reasons why like in, in private conversations with preachers and stuff like that, we work together on coming up with strategies to help make things a little more secure. If 
if you as a church cannot model generosity toward your own people, mm-hmm. don't hold your breath for your people to be generous. Mm-hmm. That was the number one thing among people uh, when I did the, the kind of the focus groupy side of that project for my doctoral degree that impacted people's giving. Do they see the church itself being generous to its own people? So if you've got your preacher living in squalor and you want to get up and talk about how generous, and here's another thing, don't get up there and talk about the raise you're giving your missionary and then hold back a raise from your own preacher for 10 years. That's bad. That's very bad. And it's also very hypocritical because I, I'm, I'm for everybody getting raises. Okay, Give them all raises. But just don't, do not. Your staff is a cherished resource. They are your best hope for growth. Amen. Period. I mean, I'm talking about the human level. Obviously, divine power, all that. But if you're going to be treating your people poorly, God is not going to bless your church. He just won't. Okay? I hope something in there uh, made a little bit of sense. Sorry for the voice today. It's just the spirit's willing, but the body's weak. Um, I'll, I'll hang out afterwards and answer questions if you want. And um, um, anyways, God bless you in all your churches. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you.